the National Archives podcast series, commemorating the Battle of Agincourt, presented by Professor Anne Curry. This talk was recorded on the 27th of October 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Thanks very much. It's great to see so many people here today and it is a wholly appropriate place to give this lecture because as I hope uh, all of you have seen, most of the documents for the English army actually are to be found uh, here. Here we have a spur, 15th century, in a tree root, obviously been there so long that the tree root has grown around it and this was allegedly found on the battlefield at Agincourt. It's now in the Victoria and Albert Museum. The only problem is there are two others and the chances of that are very slim. One's in the Burrell collection and another was sold at auction in the 1960s. This is a forgery. And the problem is we have no surviving objects from the Battle of Agincourt at all. Archaeology done over the last 10 years has failed to find anything at all and I'll come back to that when I show you some photographs of the battlefield and the problem of locating the battlefield, which is a huge one. I was also involved in the Bosworth project to locate the battlefield. Um, archaeologists can tell this is a fake as well, of course, by the fact that the timber has been softened and the um, spur put into it. Also, the timber isn't the right timber for the Pas de Calais at that point. But it reminds us that Agincourt, very much as Jeff has said, is the thing of legend. The other legend is the V sign, the idea that Henry told his archers that if they uh, uh, weren't careful, if they were defeated, they'd have fingers cut off. And allegedly at the end of the battle, they stuck two fingers up to the French to show they still had those fingers. If you've read Bernard Cornwall's novel, a very graphic scene there in 1414 of fingers being chopped off. Um, there is no truth in this, but nor can I find out when this idea first came about. There is a battle speech of Henry in one of the texts that talks about fingers being cut off, but the idea then that the English went and stuck their fingers in the air against the French is, is not known really until the early 20th century. And my reckoning is a lot of these things, a lot of our traditions really date back to the Edwardian period or the First World War. But the other reason I've included this slide is just to show how quickly history moves on. I don't know whether anybody remembers what this was. It was before the last election, and it was Ed Balls with some controversy over whether you should give receipts to, to tradesmen, you should pay them in cash, all of that kind of thing. It just shows, you know, how, and that will be true in 1415 as much as now. In the budget this year, a million pounds was given for Agincourt. As Jeff said, I've been the chair of the group allocating the funds for this. And it's quite interesting here too, because it, it fits with the way Agincourt is used and what it's come to mean, particularly in the English-speaking world. Uh, when the Chancellor announced it, he said that the battle showed a strong leader. I think we all know what that is meant to mean in modern political terms. Defeating an ill-judged alliance between the champion of a united Europe, that's Francois Hollande, obviously, and a renegade force of Scottish nationalists. <laughs> which is very far from the truth. Although there was a Franco-Scottish alliance, and there had been most of the time since the late 13th century, no Scots are known to have fought out the Battle of Agincourt on the French side. There is one Welshman, we know, fighting on the French side, but as we're going to see, don't worry, there are 
Welshmen on the English side. So that takes me then to the campaign itself. I just want to begin with that in case people don't know basically what happened at it. Henry decided to launch a campaign to France. It was first announced in Parliament in November 1414, and it is in the long tradition of the Hundred Years' War, as it came to be known, the claim that the English had to the throne of France, first put forward in 1340. The English had done quite well by 1360, they'd defeated the French at Cressy and at Poitiers, and on the last occasion, 1356, they'd captured the French king, therefore forced the French to the negotiating table, and the English had got half of France essentially given to them. As the years went on, however, they lost that land, and by 1415, the English were in quite a weak position and had next to no land more than what they'd had at the beginning of the war in 1340. So Henry V was keen to invade, both to strengthen his own position at home, he's the son of a usurper, Henry IV, usurped the throne in 1399. He also knows that the French are divided. The King of France, Charles VI, suffers from insanity, and therefore there's a struggle for control of the monarchy between the Orleanist, or Armagnac faction, and the Burgundian faction. So as the Chancellor says in Parliament in November 1414, the king understands a, a good time has come to invade. So you can see why it's going to happen now. But it's also interesting to see what Henry was intending. This is the first time a king has gone in person to France since 1359. Kings had gone for other reasons, but they'd not led armies to France since 1359. And that is quite significant. Henry then wanted to reopen this war on a very large scale. We know that he is going to contract, and I'll show you some of the documents in a minute, at least 11,200 men, possibly nearer 12,000 men. This is one of the biggest armies ever to leave England in the medieval period. And so the Shakespeare We Happy Few is a little bit awkward in this context. It's certainly the largest army since 1346. It's bigger than the army that Edward III took in 1359. Furthermore, and I'll come back to the map in a minute, Henry indented his soldiers. This is a contract for one captain, Sir Thomas Erpingham, to bring 20 men-at-arms and 60 archers. He indented his troops for 12 months. Yeah? So this was not just a stag weekend in the Pas de Calais uh, to sort of, you know, fight a battle against the French. It is a conquest. Henry was intending to conquer Normandy and hence he begins with the conquest of Harfleur. And effectively, then, it is a failed campaign. Having landed at Harfleur in the middle of August, he then spends six weeks trying to get it, and eventually it falls, and he enters it on the 22nd of September. He then decides, partly because he has a lot of sick soldiers, that he will not continue the campaign and therefore decides to take his army northwards and get out of France as quickly as possible. Much easier to move an army across land than to get all the ships back to take it all back to England. He tries to cross at the Somme, you can see there at Blanche Tac, where his great-grandfather had uh, crossed in um, 1346. And he can't do that. He believes a large French army is on the north bank and therefore he moves southwards along the river 
there until he can find a crossing. And he goes really quite a long way, about 80 miles inland there, before he can cross. When he crosses, the French realise they've got to intercept him before he leaves, and therefore they come out of Iran, where some of them are based at the time, and they summon him to battle. So Agincourt is also an interesting battle in that it is pre-arranged. However, we don't know whether it was actually pre-arranged to be fought at Azincourt, which is the French spelling of the place we call Agincourt, or the place just to the east of it called Aubigny en Artois. There are two French chronicles, well-informed chroniclers, that tell us that Henry was summoned to Aubigny en Artois. Now, this could explain a lot. For a start, it shows that he had no intention of going to Aubigny en Artois, so he's still battle-avoiding. He moves in the opposite direction, but then the French intercept him. But it can also explain why the French were not in as large numbers at the battlefield as they'd hoped, and also particularly why the Duke of Brabant, for instance, coming in from the east, from Lens, was actually late getting to the battlefield, why the Duke of Brittany the day of the battle, was still in Amiens. Nobody quite knew then where they were heading for. We forget about this in the modern world with so much uh, communication possibilities, just how difficult it was to get an army in the right place at the right time. Jumping ahead a little bit, but what we're going to find is that when we look at the French army, it is very much an army of this area. It's from Picardy, Artois and Upper Normandy. It is not a national French army. You couldn't possibly get people from Lyon in areas like that. Even from uh, from Anjou, those areas, you couldn't get them there. So that's another thing we forget when people say French army must have been, you know, in thousand. Uh, it, it really couldn't be drawn from a very wide geographical area. So in a nutshell, that is the campaign. It's often made much of that Henry has this long march. He's doing about 23 kilometers a day. Standard speed, the Cressy campaign the same. But just notice that the French are also moving long distances. And that's never an easy situation for foodstuffs and uh, with all the carts and things needed. So that's the campaign in a nutshell. Now, you've seen some of these documents already. They're not unique to Agincourt. In fact, these, this system of indenture started really in earnest from 1369. So it was all really very well established how you raised an army. This is a large army uh, and a large number of men indented, about 320 altogether, with some of them in groups. There are some of the documents there where you show even five men all promising to serve together and bring archers essentially with them. What we've got that's interesting here, these are all the terms and conditions, we get the pay rates, that kind of thing here, is the ratio of men-at-arms to archers. In nearly every one of these, it is one man-at-arms to three archers. So here we've got 20 men-at-arms and 60 archers. Now that is a ratio that is relatively new. We find it in the Welsh Wars, and it was obviously deemed to be an optimum. Remember, Henry had been wounded at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403 uh, in the face with an arrow. So we knew the effectiveness of archers. In the late 14th century, the ratio was one man-at-arms to one archer. So we're getting a considerable increase in the proportion and number of archers. Another reason for that is archers were easily recruited. Men had to practice at the butts every Sunday. And also archers were cheap. 
they cost sixpence a day, whereas a man-at-arms, the fully plate-armoured, with able to use sword and various range of weapons, whereas the archers are very lightly armed with a leather jacket, usually, and some sort of helmet, uh, men-at-arms are paid a shilling a day. So if you want to get a big army, you go for the, the sort of cheaper end, so to speak. And Henry did. When a king goes to France in person with an army, he wants a big army. And when he went to the city of London for a loan, because credit finance and government were very important in this period, you levied taxation, but in the interim you had to, to raise taxes, raise loans, uh, he told the city that he was going to invade with uh, uh, a by no means small army. So whilst we might think, and we're going to reflect on this later, about the difference in size of the armies for the English, this is a big army and a big military effort intended to land for uh, to, to last for 12 months. We've got quite a number of these indentures. This is Thomas Lord Camoys, who was to command the rear guard on the left at the battle. Lots of subsidiary documentation, the receipts for payments. And one very interesting thing about the campaign was Henry V didn't have enough money to launch the campaign. It's never stopped governments doing things, of course, if they haven't had enough money. Uh, and what Henry did, because the, the captains got the money and then gave it out to their troops, um, the, the nobles and gentry wouldn't go on this campaign without six months' wages being paid in advance. That, again, isn't sort of unprecedented, though it might have been more commonly three months for a 12-month period of service. Henry could only find enough cash for three months' wages so for the second three months, he went to the royal jewel cupboards and got out the jewels and plate, including some spare crowns, and he had them weighed, and then to the value of silver in them, essentially, they were given to the captains to reflect the wages for the second three-month period. So the captains went off, either pawned them with London goldsmiths and then gave the cash to their troops, or... They just held on to them and paid out of their own pocket with a view to redeeming these objects. And Henry set a date in uh, the early part of 1417 to redeem these. Now, the point about all of this is, A, it shows Henry's obsession with launching this campaign. Nothing was going to stop him. The second thing is it shows the investment that all of these captains and soldiers had in the expedition. It had to work. Otherwise, they were going to be very out of pocket. And that's going to explain a lot. It explains why Henry aborts the campaign. In fact, it's quite interesting that the day he aborts it, that he moves out of Harfleur here, on either the 6th or the 8th of October, that's the beginning of the second three-month period. So he was reckoning if he got back to Calais quickly, he wouldn't have any problems because in reality... Uh, you'd be able to redeem the jewels straight away. It wouldn't be an issue. So we can see the financial constraints of all of this weigh quite heavily on him, I think, uh, at this point. He was not going to make any further conquests, although initially he certainly had intended that. A letter written from the siege camp said that he was going to go on to uh, Montevillas nearby Dieppe, just up the coast, and to Rouen, eventually. So it was intended as a campaign of conquest. Now, this is war fought by accountants. It's all right saying you're going to bring 20 men-at-arms and 60 archers, but you've got to check that Erpingham has done that. And this is a muster for his troops on the heath at Southampton, which is one of the mustering points. 
notice it's a sort of receipt for his men. This is in E101 4430. What we've got then is Thomas Erpingham at the top. You might be able to see the big T there. And then his men-at-arms, who are actually called esquires. Esquire meant man-at-arms at this point. So social status and military status go hand in hand. And then we've got the archers down at the bottom. There are some in the middle there, uh, lances ultra la nombre. These are surplus to requirements, but they're tagging along anyway in the hope that some at the top die, basically, and they then get a job. So you can see there's plenty of enthusiasm for this. It's a good wage rate. You have chances of getting ransoms, that sort of stuff. Notice, too, they have not got little dots next to them, whereas the others have. It's like a class list. They've been ticked off there. Uh, so the checking and double-checking. Henry was himself a bit of a control freak, and therefore it's not surprising that a lot of effort was put into this kind of thing. Even today, people say the Welsh predominated. Uh, certain Ranulf Fiennes said this, for instance, in his book. It is not true. There were 500 Welsh archers recruited from South Wales, and this is the muster we have for them. Only South Wales because Owen Glendower was still believed to be alive, and so the North was still not secure enough to recruit troops from it. So 500 were recruited, and we know which commotes these came from. We've got Cantrasilly there, some came from Brecon, they're mainly from Cardigan and Carmarthen, actually. So we know quite a lot about them, and a new book has come out by Adam Chapman on the Welsh soldier in the later Middle Ages. So in addition to those mixed retinues, as we call them, the men-at-arms and archers, we have these special archer companies. 500 here, 500 also from Lancashire, and possibly 650 from Cheshire. These were areas that had reputations for having substantial archer companies. So Henry is trying to create, then, a pretty archer-rich army, because archers are versatile, can be used in any military situation. It doesn't necessarily show that he was planning for a battle, but, of course, any English commander invading France would know that the French were likely to try to bring him to battle, particularly as he is the king. They would want to take revenge for Poitiers when their king was captured. We've loads of these documents. We've now got to Harfleur, and things went a bit pear-shaped, really, for Henry here. It was a very difficult siege because, like Belgium in the First World War, they flooded, the defenders flooded all this area to the northwest there, Henry's on hills here, and his brother, the Duke of Clarence, who incidentally had the largest retinue of 960 men. There were many, many small retinues, but he had the largest one at 960. He gets round to the other side. It's where the mines are uh, uh, put on that side there, filled in in 1419. This side here, um, we know there were guns, but we also know there were German gunners. The English had not got much expertise in gunnery at this point. There were various um, assaults on the bulwark here. It's a very, very well-defended place, and it had been the place from which lots of pirates and ships had set out to raid England from. So it was a good target, but it took Henry far too long. And also, if you have a lot of men here, if we imagine uh, maybe the 12,000, there would have been some pages in addition to this. Many of the archers were also servants, so think Downton Abbey, uh, William, you know, gets killed, the footman. This is a the point. These people serve in that double capacity 
um, you'd have had Fletchers and Bowyers who also were serving as archers. So it's quite interesting that they're not separate, uh, the, but they're very much part of the military group. So we've got more than 12,000. All the horses there as well, a huge problem in feeding horses during a siege. Henry probably had made a mistake in besieging with such a large army and keeping them all in close proximity to each other because that's the circumstances under which disease develops, as indeed it did in Harfleur. There's dysentery there too. So although he takes the place, he's got great big holes in the walls of it. The one swore into the breach, all those breaches were so substantial he needed to put 1,200 men into garrison to defend it. That's a huge garrison. 300 men-at-arms and 900 archers. And he's also got the problem of some of his men are sick, and next door there were some of these sick lists. And also these little documents on paper, these sort of permission to go home, basically. Now these sick lists are interesting. The bottom lot here are Welsh archers, so it's another reason why they don't predominate, even some of them go home. But we have a problem with these. These are lists of Jean Malade, sick men. However, what I found when I've looked at various other roles, uh, including the Agincourt role, is that some of these are actually at the battle. So we may have got a bit confused between being invalided home, which is the expression they use, and actually being sick. I've been sick sometimes when I've been in France because the seafood is always lovely and one eats and drinks far too much of it, but I have recovered. And it is possible then that not everybody in these lists actually was sent home. So we have a complication here. Even so, we have 1,500 men in these lists. So let's take it at this stage that they, they did go home. Um, men died at the siege. Some of them were killed in military actions. Some died from dysentery, most famously Richard Courtney, the Bishop of Norwich, one of Henry's closest friends, and the man behind the jewels idea. We're pretty certain about that. Um, so Henry loses men, but by no means as many as the chroniclers say. So far I've found 50 men dying at Harfleur. And this is, uh, it, it, obviously there are more than that, that's probably for about a third of the retinues, so maybe 200 at, at most. Now be careful with this because Jonathan Sumption's new book says 2,000. Um, so it's highly unlikely because we have got loads of names, you know, loads of financial records we can use for this. So even so, we can assume that Henry had lost 1,200 to the garrison, 1,500 going home, perhaps a couple of hundred um, dying at the siege. We've got him down perhaps to about 8,500 men, depending on exactly how many he set off within the first place. But what we can see from these documents, and there are loads of these, here we have the Earl of Arundel's muster taken during the campaign shows replacements coming in. This is another thing that one can find from the TNA material. Yes, men went home, but others came in their place. So we've got to be very cautious with how many we, we think actually were out of action. After the campaign, many of these accounts were drawn up where it said what had happened to each retinue, and again there, we don't have all that many dying at half or even being invalided home. Putting all of these together, and you've seen a huge enrolled one, E3586, um, we actually, you know, would, would suggest that Henry has about 8,500 men still with him on the campaign. Quite an interesting role in this context is Thomas Lord Camoys, as I say, going to command the rear guard, 
virtually no one in his muster roll here actually uh, is not at the Battle of Agincourt with him. So there's been a lot of exaggeration by other historians as to the, the terrible effects of dysentery on Henry's army. One of his men put into garrison there, this one here, stayed at the town of Harfleur, but otherwise virtually all of them are with him at the Battle of Agincourt. So putting all of these things together, um, we've got them all on medievalsoldier.org, and there's one at the Royal Armouries as well, putting the fate, and we're working on an even bigger uh, database for Agincourt. I honestly think that uh, it's credible to say Henry had 8,500 men. However, about 7,000 at least of those are archers, and 1,000 or 1,500 um, thereabouts are men-at-arms. Therefore, his ratio has got greater. Though there are more, proportionately more archers now in his army, and that's going to be very significant in the way he fights the battle. And in my opinion, that's why the armies look so different from each other and why the chronicles say the French had so many more, because they had so many more men-at-arms. French armies were the other way round. We had a ratio of one to three. They were having, tending to have a ratio of at least two to one, sometimes three to one. So they have a men-at-arms rich military system. We have an archer rich military system. It is very complicated, this, and the more work I do, the more compli whoops, the more complicated it becomes. Camoys, as reorganization of retinues has happened as well at uh, Harfleur, and in fact, uh, Camoys recruited 89 men. He was supposed to recruit 90, he only recruited 89. However, another 8, 9 seems to have joined his company there. One knight is in his company. All of the 98, except for eight men-at-arms, were at the battle. Okay, so 90 men were at the battle with him. However, when we have the shipping accounts to get men home, these are very useful because obviously this is going to show how many men died at the battle, yeah, which is the total unknown for the English. Unfortunately, in 1417, when Henry eventually got round to sorting out the accounting, he said anybody who died at the battle should be paid right to the end of the campaign. Now, was that deliberate? Was it to minimise the, the sort of English deaths, i.e. To, to sort of claim there hadn't been very many? We don't know. Or was it just a reward for having been on the whole campaign? But it does mean we don't know how many English people died at the battle. But maybe here we have got a clue that 77 men were shipped home. There. So it's possible here that 21 of his retinue actually died at the battle, or fewer than that, if some of them had stayed stayed behind. We know from the Agincourt roll, not the one there, another one I'll explain in a minute, that one man-at-arms in his company died at the battle. And we know also that the jewels were not redeemed until 1421 in his case, but we also know that prisoners uh, were taken by his company, and I think this is the document concerning his prisoners. So there's a huge amount of documentation for the English army. Therefore, we've no need to rely on chronicle evidence, which is always problematic for reasons I'll explain later when I look more detail at the French. You've seen one of these. You know this is a medieval filing system that all the documents for one captain are put into one bag and hung on a peg in the exchequer. So we're back on the campaign, and we are around here. Corby, worried what's going to happen. 
this point, and he hears from some French prisoners that the French have a plan, and that plan is to override the English archers. The cavalry then, French cavalry, are going to just ride down the English archers, and he famously orders the archers to make themselves a stake. And this is the first time this has been used in the West, as far as we can tell. However, it was used by the Turks at the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, and some of Henry's men may well have been at that uh, battle. But you can see now things are hotting up. The, the French are really determined to, to fight against Henry, and Henry is thinking of ways of protecting his very vulnerable archers. Archers are not in plate armour. can't really use a longbow effectively in plate armour anyway. He knows he's got a very disproportionately large number of archers who cannot enter into the melee. Therefore, he's got to protect them and maximise, if you like, their effectiveness in shooting while they are protected in order to protect his men-at-arms. Essentially, that's got to be the tactic he uses. Now, how Henry knew about this is very interesting because this is the French battle plan. This tells us about that plan to override the archers. It tells us about the plan to attack the baggage. It also talks about the number of battles, divisions that the French should have. This was found in the British Library in the 1980s by Christopher Philpotts. We don't know how it got there. And it is possible that it is this document that actually fell into English hands. That would really create a very different impression. But I do want you to realise here, really, that this isn't all amateurish, that the command by Henry is, is significant, uh, and also that even if he hadn't got this, he knew, he knew one key element in the French uh, uh, attack, maybe because Medieval battles are not fought in that many different ways. At Cressy, the French had tried the same sort of thing against the English archers. Now we are at Agincourt, or where we believe the battle is fought on Sunday in the little tent area here. Approximately there is where we put a new monument up. This, no archaeology has revealed anything here, not a single arrowhead, and it's a bit worrying there, but uh, we've all got to kind of have somewhere. For me, it isn't quite the right place because it's too flat. I'll show you some slides of other possible locations in a minute, but for, for today's purposes, let's assume we are there. You are the English. I find that people I talk to like to be the English rather than the French. Uh, you're looking on to the French. You can imagine them there. Um, in the middle, we've got Henry V, we've got the Duke of York's company on the right, probably slightly further forward as the, the vanguard, we've got Thomas, Lord Camoy's company, that side slightly further back. Now, we've got the archers in the front and also flanking on the sides. Now, there's a lot of them, so they're going to be very much in a sort of horseshoe shape. And Indeed, one French chronicle speaks of this feeling of encirclement. So that's what you're, you're looking at. It's likely uh, Henry got there on the 24th. He thought the French would immediately give battle and he drew his men up in battle formation. They didn't because they're still waiting for people to come. So he stands them down. The battle occurs on the morning of the, the 25th. But the French are still waiting for people to come. And that, of course, makes sense if the battle had been intended to be fought in a different location. 
The soil is very significant to Agincourt. The soil is amazingly uh, sticky, and if you fall in it, it would have been quite difficult to, to get up. I find it extremely difficult to get it off my shoes when I, the other week I was there. It actually blocked the sink in the hotel. It's, and, and, of course, the interesting thing here is, had Henry found some more firmer land, maybe he'd forced the French, because he draws up his army first, maybe he'd forced the French to come across terrain, because he's got the smaller army, no doubt about that. Therefore, he adopts the defensive position with the stakes. And they've got to come at him, Initially, they show no intention of doing that, so he moves at least some of his army forward. He forces them then to go across this kind of terrain, maybe churned up by their horses the night before as well, said in one of the texts. This is essentially what happens. Very good plan from Matthew Bennett's Osprey book on the back. You can see what I'm saying about the layout there of the English army, though I think the uh, men at arms are in an oblique line rather than a direct line there. We've got the cavalry coming down here, except the French can't find enough cavalry to do this overriding. Now, this points to a command problem. The king isn't there, because he's mad, not mad enough to be at Agincourt, however. The Dauphin isn't there, because the French are worried about the English. This is another thing that comes through the texts. We can, you know, we're very patriotic, I know, we think, you know, that uh, uh, they were arrogant, and yet we defeated them nonetheless. They were really quite worried about this. That's why they'd not faced Henry at half blur when they could have done. So, the commander is the Duke of Orleans, 21 years old, never been in a battle before, never led. The Duke of Bourbon, also pretty young. They push aside the constable and the marshal, more experienced. They're desperate to get to grips with the English. However, they cannot enforce their authority over the cavalry, and men just don't join the cavalry to do it. Now, this points to a really serious command issue, battle, where the cavalry refuse to participate. So some of them do, but they achieve no success because of the stakes and also because of the arrows. Arrows are very damaging to horses, and my reckoning is that these men-at-arms, these cavalry, didn't want to expose their horses because they would almost certainly be destroyed. It might be why they didn't participate in this charge. Uh, they're not fully armoured at this, this point. The other thing that's said is they, there was no glory to be won against archers. That's true as well, no ransoms, because they've got the same ideas. They've paid soldiers too. Soldiers. So that first stage doesn't have the effect of knocking the archers out, Hence, when the men-at-arms on foot, battles are fought on foot, really from the early 14th century, when these divisions in the middle come forward, they're still faced with the barrages of arrows. The effect of that is, you can imagine, you can be the French now, if people here were throwing tennis balls at you, what would you do? You'd all start crowding in on each other. You'd go to the middle there. Some of you would fall over, others would fall on top of you. You'd get so close you couldn't raise your weapon arm, and that is what the texts say. So the heaps and the closeness. And some of you never get to the English lines. You've gone face down in the mud, and you suffocate, essentially. You cannot get up because others have piled on top of you. And that's why these rear divisions see this and leave, really. But front group there, some on the French left, do penetrate the English right, 
So I'm afraid if you're the English, again, here, the Duke of York's lot, you're going to lose at least 90 men and the Duke himself. So the French do make some progress there, but not on the Camoys left flank there. And the frightening thing about Agincourt is we're probably talking about French deaths, at least in four figures, and English deaths maybe a couple of hundred at the most, though you've heard what I said about the difficulty of knowing. Now, if these in the middle have got to grips with their counterparts, they're very similarly armed, they are similarly trained from an early age, uh, they would have fought in the same kind of way, you would have expected pretty equal deaths on each side. We do not have that. It's an asymmetrical battle. And that suggests that actually very relatively few of the French actually ever got to grips with the men-at-arms on the English side. It's complicated, of course, by the killing of the prisoners. Henry thinks he's won, and he sends men to search through the heaps. To do that, you've got to take your gauntlets off and your helmet off, particularly when you're looking through a little slit like that. So the men start pulling people out. A shout goes up. Probably the Duke of Brabant is coming, someone's coming, uh, and Henry collects the prisoners together, puts them in a barn, and sets the barn on fire. That's the eyewitness testimony we have of that. And that means we don't know how many died there and how many actually had died in the battle itself. So it sort of warps the, 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 the um, evaluation, I think, of this battle. It's not unique. The Battle of Aljuba Rotta in 1385 had had a killing of prisoners as well. Absolutely essential for military necessity. But this plan very happily here for me shows people running away. And indeed, French texts comment on cowardice and treason. And so it doesn't really matter how many men you've got in your army if they don't all fight. And that's another thing that's often missed in discussions of adjuncts. That takes me then to the French army. Chronicles, I think some of you probably know the sort of thing, what we're talking about here, these are narratives, histories, it's not unique to Agincourt, they, like Walsingham here, wrote, who's a monk at St Albans, uh, wrote a history from the 1370s through to probably when he died in 1422. Uh, so these are sort of monastic chronicles of the time, as a decent number of them for Agincourt, both on the English side and the French side here. But we can see right away a problem these are not real figures. These are symbolic figures. And 60,000 was a very popular figure for chroniclers to use. The Peasants' Revolt of 1381 has 60,000 Kentish peasants in London. Clever that, because the population of Kent was 51,000 in 1381. That includes women and children. So these are meaningless in the sense they're not, they're not real figures. What they're saying is a very big army. I just mean sort of, uh, so if we if we had, say, Walsingham talking about another army, and he said that was 60,000, we'd know that this one, in his estimation, was bigger than that one. So we can use them comparatively, but they are not real figures. We have the same problem for all battles, and I've been asking colleagues when this problem stops, and I'm told it isn't really until the 17th century that people, when they're writing this, have a real idea as to what numbers are credible and why they should write a credible number. 
So some of these figures just are, are absolutely ridiculous. The French could not have raised armies like this for reasons I'm going to explain in a minute. But this one here, the brute is the English text, the others are in French or in Latin, uh, that explains why it gets into Hall and Hollinshead in the 16th century, because it copies those traditions. But look at the French estimates of their own army. This is the fisherman with the great big uh, fish, isn't it? The English, you know, whoa, there were 60,000 and we, we killed them all, you know. Uh, look at the lower figures that the French give for their army. And you could say they actually are more likely to know than the English are. If you've ever tried to estimate how many people there are in a room or in a football stadium, it's actually very difficult to do. The figures they're giving there, just look at two down the bottom, Berry, Herald and Richemont. Richemont uh, was captured at the battle, and there's a chronicle written a bit later by one of his servants, actually give the French army a smaller than the English army. So it is by no means as, as easy as popular writers seem to think. We have got administrative records for the French, and I'm the only person really who's ever looked at these. And we can compare with some earlier armies here. This one, 1414, Charles VI headed that army in person against the Duke of Burgundy, so it's 14,500. Why then do I think there were fewer at Agincourt? Well, because the king is not there in person, because the Burgundians are not part of the army, the Duke of Burgundy is told to stay away, the Duke of Orleans is initially told to stay away, so I think it will be lower than that, but maybe that gives a sort of maximum figure. We also know that they'd raised a tax to pay for an army, and they said the army they were looking to raise was 9,000 men. We know there was a, a Simons de Noble, a call-out of the nobles in the area, but that wouldn't have generated, it's in the north of France as well, wouldn't have generated huge companies. Most men came along just with a couple of other soldiers. Um, did the largest retinue I found is the Duke of Berry. He's not up the battle, too old. And he musters a thousand men-at-arms and 500 archers. Now he is the equivalent to the Duke of Clarence. Clarence has 960 men on the campaign, though some have been invalided home. So the Duke of Berry with 1,500 shows perhaps the proportion. Therefore, my suggestions of 8,500, maybe against 12,000, would be, roughly speaking, the, the differences between those retinue sizes as well. So we've got a base figure, and we know that in the middle of the century, the French reformed their armies and got to just over 15,000. So how come, then, they could do better in 1415, they couldn't really. It's ahistorical to say that they could. To say they had 60,000 or 100,000, seven times as many as English, actually is just totally incredible. We've got muster rolls for the French, which we're putting together now, to show you the sort of database work that we're doing on these. The other thing we can do is look at later French armies on the assumption that uh, indeed English armies too, that armies grow in size over the early modern period. You can see here that it isn't until 1494 in the Italian campaigns that the French actually raised 20,000 men. So to say they had more than that in 1415 is frankly impossible. If you're saying 60,000, you're in the reign of Louis XIV. 
14th when armies are substantially larger. It's the same issue in England as well. It's not until the turn of the century there that armies are starting to get larger than the force that Henry took in 1415. The other thing about this can be linked to casualties, because casualties are a useful indication of the, uh, uh, the, the scale of a battle. The chronicles say anywhere between three and 12,000 were dead, and Monster Lake, an important chronicle, says 5,800. However, he only names 273 of them. This is a problem, incidentally, for other battles. Courtrai, 1302, deemed to be one of the most bloody battles ever fought between the Flemish and the French. Uh, I think for that we know 90 people who died. Okay, these are men of name, but it is possible that no rank and file actually ever participated in Agincourt for the reasons I've, I've given. Essentially, so it is only men of name who, who die. We've so far been able to identify 500 dead for Agincourt. Okay, that's the minimum, maybe 1,500 in, in total. But again, you see the problem. Now, just imagine what it would be like if 12,000 people died. We would find that in the manorial accounts and the urban records. It would be noticeable. It isn't. There are some succession disputes. There certainly be some families father and two sons died, yeah, pretty awful, and can be traced, but not on the scale. Uh, it would just have wiped out the whole of northern France, really, and therefore it is not credible. The same with the prisoners, many different figures given. So far, we've identified just over 300 prisoners, and we're on pretty firm ground with prisoners because they're ransomed. We have documents in the National Archives uh, for these. So again, we must be cautious with us. The other thing that we can do is map these dead and prisoners. It reinforces what I've said about the, the battle being a northern French army, which again keeps the size of it uh, down. There are some people from elsewhere, but relatively few. Why then is Agincourt still remembered? It wasn't a decisive battle. Although the Duke of Orleans was captured and a good number of important people were killed, none of them was so important to force the French to the negotiating table. In fact, like after Cressy, a defeat of such a magnitude in terms of killing so many more than you lost yourself and killing nobles and sort of decimating the nobility of this part of France would not persuade the French to come to the negotiating table. They didn't in 1346. Cressy was exactly the same thing. They so humiliated, they cannot possibly meet with the English to negotiate at all. Henry's going to invade again two years later. They're not going to face him in battle again. Therefore, he can conquer Normandy. Siege of Rouen for six months. He expects the French to come to try to rescue it. They choose not to. So Agincourt then has the effect of the French never again wanting to challenge. However, Shakespeare takes us straight from Agincourt to the Treaty of Trial 1420, where Henry becomes heir to the French throne. In fact, there's a lot of fighting in between. And the only reason Henry becomes heir by treaty is internal divisions in France. Essentially, the Armagnacs, or Leonists, assassinate the Duke of Burgundy. 
that forces the Burgundians to ally with the English in 1419 and accept Henry in order to disinherit the Dauphin. So it's all politics rather than military defence. The battle then is reinvented because of Shakespeare. And here we have the quarto uh, edition um, of 1600. The play seems to date to 1599 and be the first play performed at the Globe. It's the culmination, of course, of those 15th century histories, the Henry VI and Richard III first, and then the Henry IV, and Henry V is the last of those. They're done in reverse order. And it shows the great interest in that period in the medieval past. An interest also flagged by the heralds and by the desire of the gentry in particular to claim coats of arms in which it was very useful when the herald came to your town or village to say, my ancestor served at. Agincourt is one of those useful battles to, to mention. So it's all to do with then society in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. This is what's often known as the Agincourt Roll. It's from a now lost original of men who were at the battle. It would have looked like those documents next door. It was copied, or copied from a copy, in the 1580s by Robert Glover, the Somerset Herald. He did it three times, they're in three different libraries in the UK, and he only copied the names of the men-at-arms, probably not all of those either. He didn't copy the names of the archers because an archer wouldn't generate gentlemen down the centuries, so he didn't think there was a need to record those. And for many years, people said, we do not know the names of the archers at Adjunkwood. Well, as you see from the muster rolls and post-campaign lists, we do actually know the names of the archers. This Adjuncourt roll was first printed in 1827 and has a bit of a cult status, really. There are some websites you can go on to uh, where you know, American families claim they own this. It's a sort of secret thing, and for only a small payment, you can trace your ancestors. Probably go to medievalsoldier.org. It's free to, to do it there. So we have put this list on as well. And it is a very interesting list, because, as I say, some of the names in here are of men who seem to have been in the sick lists uh, earlier. But this generated a sort of a cult of Agincourt, as I say, not wholly unique to Agincourt, but uh, it's easily spotted there. And people invented coats of arms to go with this family tradition. This coat was introduced between 1590 and 1590. The visitation of Kent did not have that little escutcheon of the Duke of Orleans on it. By 1619, it did. So within 20 years, then, it appears. This is the Waller family. Richard Waller was at the battle. He's in the lists. But there was a claim then made by his descendants that he had captured the Duke of Orleans. He didn't. In fact, he had custody of the Count of Angoulême, the younger brother of the Duke of Orleans. You know, so well, does that matter? Yes, it does, because that was a hostage deal of 1412. He already had the Count of Angoulême in his custody. So a myth developed there and got into enshrined in a coat of arms. From that follow other myths that the ransom of the Duke of Orleans paid for uh, a rebuilding of the church at Groombridge and a building of a new house at Groombridge. The sort of story improves in the telling, because there was no ransom. Even worse is the Woodhouse coat of arms. John Woodhouse was not at the battle, but uh, he gets into Drayton's poem of 1627, the Battle of Agincourt, and by the 19th century, when 
the Woodhouse family become Earls of Kimberley, they go full his with an Agincourt motto, drops French blood in the middle there, and also this cudgel that allegedly John Woodhouse went round conking the French on the head and shouting, Frap Fort, hit hard. Now this is found in a poem by Michael Drayton in 1627. Part of this interest in the medieval past, he wrote one of Margaret Anjou uh, as well there. This isn't that poem, this is another one by Drayton, written in 1606 and copied out by John Lennon, amazingly. It shows education is quite different in the 1950s, I think. But the Battle of Agincourt, 1627, is the one where lots of people are given little cameo roles, including, for instance, Davy Gam in it, and Woodhouse. And it's, it's, it's a crazy poem. It's, well, it's terribly violent. I don't think we'd let our school kids read the Battle of Agincourt today. Bodies are, are split in two. At the end of the battle, the English have won so in such a uh, definitive way that they forced the French to carry them on their backs as a complete invention by Drayton. So it's a poem of 1627, nothing much to do with Agincourt. As I say, it's where Gam, who did indent, there's his indenture, is listed in some contemporary chronicles as dead. We don't know why he's mentioned there, uh, but he is. However, the first mention of him as doing anything at the battle is in Walter Raleigh's History of the World in 1614. Most peculiar, because Raleigh's talking about Hannibal, and all of a sudden he says it's like Davy Gam in Agincourt. He says that Gam was sent out as a spy, and he came back with this report that of the Frenchmen there were enough to be killed, enough to be taken prisoners, and enough to run away. And that little epithet gets into all of these later ones, gets into the poem... 1627, and a whole story is created around it. Yeah? Um, and then it finds its way into later texts. And in 1827, when Harris Nicholas wrote his History of the Battle of Agincourt, he added uh, this idea that Gam was knighted. He was one of the two newly dubbed knights. From that developed the further story that he was knighted posthumously on the battle. He was already dead it wouldn't have happened. That's just not a medieval practice. So, again, the story develops in the telling. Essentially, though, it's dated back to Walter Raleigh. Because we fought the French a lot over the centuries, on every occasion in the 18th century, Agincourt was wheeled out on the premise that we'd done it in the past, we can do it again. And I've been looking in newspapers in particular to see the mentions of Agincourt. Here we've got one from the War of Austrian Succession, Here's another one from the Seven Years' War, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the war in which, 1759, our glorious year. Um, the first mention of the battle, the anniversary in a newspaper, you know, today is the day of, yeah, is in 1757. Must be linked to this war here. Notice also the radical fortitude, this idea that we won because we were already pseudo-democratic and we were already, you know, men of the soil, whereas those Frenchies, they were all arrogant and they were bound to have a revolution coming sooner or later. So that sort of comparison, and the archers, of course, fit in very well to this kind of narrative too. When we were fighting the revolutionary wars after the French Revolution, we see it here. The French preserve their characters in 1798. The events of this war show we're not degenerated, for we think we may without arrogance assert that in the hour of severest trial we've proved ourselves worthy of our glorious ancestors. 
1805, the year of Trafalgar, a great Agincourt painting was on show in London. You could pay a shilling to go and see it. There had been a similar painting of Seringapatam, the great victory in India. So this sort of cultivated past to sort of gird the loins of the present is a very interesting way that Agincourt was used. The Lord Mayor's show in 1815, there are no, uh, no obvious remembrance of it in 1815, no commemoration, but certainly in the Lord Mayor's show in November, um, the, the two battles were noted together. And we've got a float in this year's uh, Lord Mayor's show, which is quite exciting. Shakespeare remains a huge influence, and the productions got more and more uh, amazing as the century went on. We're in the 1850s here with dancing girls at the entry to London, not in the play, uh, but Henry always on a white horse, campfires in real fires on the stage, you know, no health and safety in those days, um, French dancing girls, no doubt the same dancing girls as at Henry's entry to London, French dancing girls in the camp the night before the battle to show how degenerate the French were, all that kind of stuff. It's quite. It's a very good book by somebody called Smith on how the play has been trained. Some of you will know the Branagh film, the Olivier film, very different. Uh, also the, the very famous production uh, after the Falklands War with Puck the Frogs up and things that, you know, I linking it to modern uh, warfare. Um, the play has been interpreted in so many ways. By 1915, we were allies of the French, and here we are at Tramcourt, uh, just to the east of the battlefield, a chateau where the French uh, um, sort of top brass were based, and where, in fact, George V went twice, 1917 and 1918, so we, see, we saw the battlefield. This is the anniversary on the 25th of October, 1915, where research has shown it actually was the 26th, because it rained on the 25th and they couldn't hold this parade that day. And the French Lieutenant Colonel showing British officers around the field. Incidentally, the report, which is in the Illustrated London News and in French magazine, L'Illustration, says the English had 28,000 men at the battle in 1415. So you can see over the centuries, there's lots of different versions of this battle. Finally, then, where was it fought? Well, the earliest map we have of the 1780s shows it to the west of Avancourt. Yet we think it is to the east. The plan in Harris Nicholas also shows it to the west of Agincourt. But the first survey done in 1818 by a lieutenant colonel in the army of occupation, he occupied this area after the Napoleonic Wars put it where it's commonly believed to be today. So we've got Azancourt on the left, Tramcourt on the right, and the lining up of the soldiers there. And he puts onto this map the grave pits and various other things. We have a useful key to all of this. The problem is, is this real, or is it him reading the chronicles and then imposing them on the map, like a Middle Earth of Tolkien, that sort of marvellous map you get there. And uh, so far, Tim Sutherland looking at the area where the grave pits were marked by uh, Woodford, has not been able to find anything there. We have a few letters that Woodford wrote saying what he'd found, but none of the finds survived. They were all mysteriously burnt in the fire in 1874. So, so far, no grave pits. Are they here, next to the Calvaire, erected in about 1870? Well, we haven't found them there yet. Got very excited. There was some mass 
bought them off us mass there and Tim said I think I found them and it was an oil drill from the 1970s. There are some bodies, these were dug up in a church in 1936, but we know where 54 people were buried as their friends took them to local churches. Some were even buried many, many miles away. For instance, the uh, Duke of Alençon was buried in Cis, down in, in Lower Normandy. This is the body of uh, Galois Le Fougère, dug up in the 1930s, and it's now under the uh, National Gendarmerie Monument in Versailles. So probably he's the only skeleton we're going to see. Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, we've got his skeleton up in St. Anne, in uh, St. Albans. We've, we've looked at him recently. Was the battle fought here? This was Tim Sutherland's first study. You see, battles normally have hills in them and valleys, and these are mentioned in the narratives. This is near Rousseville, or was it fought here? This is Maisoncelle. In fact, the white building across there, the White House of the Red Roof, is the one that we saw in the middle of the battlefield. So it's possible that it's just a different alignment. But this again is much more, it's much more like Cressy, much more like Bosworth, really, this. And Armies tend to adopt higher positions than just that very flat territory. Memorialization, 1963, the first monument erected on Joan of Arc's day, for the obvious why. The Saint Historique, built with European money in 2001, featuring the longbow. And then finally, the monument we put up at the weekend there designed by the French, uh, it's to the dead of both sides who have no known grave. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting um, thing there. Um, you would imagine on uh, Sunday there were some people coming up and saying, why have we got the Union Jack on it? Why have we got the Tricolor? But even more, why have we got the European Union? <laughs> Thanks very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.